بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته It's my honor to welcome you all to the third episode of Behind the Member. This time I'm joined by the respected Dr. Sayyid Hadi Qazwini. Assalamu alaikum, Sayyidna. How are you? Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Alhamdulillah. How are you doing? Alhamdulillah. I'm well. Uh, it's an honor to have you here. We just commemorate the Mawlid of Ali al-Akbar, alayhi salam. Uh, and it's always great to have uh, such a respected guest such as yourself uh, grace us in the center and uh, share your knowledge with us. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure and honor to be with you. Thank you. And uh, Sayyidna, you're uh, you're in more in the academic field. You have a PhD, mashaAllah. Allah yuzidkum alman. And tell us, you work at the, I believe, the Claremont College is your chaplain there. What's yeah. that like? Yeah, so um, uh, I've been working as a chaplain at the Claremont Colleges. Essentially what the chaplain does, I think this is a term that a lot of people may not be familiar with. A chaplain is someone who, uh, in various kind of um, uh, organizations, this particularly, in my case, at a, in a university setting, provides religious and spiritual guidance and support. Mm -hmm. uh, so I work as the Muslim chaplain, but I also work uh, in an interfaith capacity. So I, um, I oversee uh, religious programming uh, across the Claremont Colleges, which is a group of seven institutions, um, uh, small liberal uh, arts schools uh, in Southern California. So I provide sort of guidance for events, programming, um, uh, uh, specifically, you know, most of my work is with the Muslim community, faculty, staff, and students, but also I work in an interfaith capacity providing, you know, support, um, you know, for other uh, students. And uh, in addition to, you know, oftentimes being called on uh, to participate in lectures and some of the classes that are taught on, on campus and uh, some, some of the public events, but essentially providing sort of representation uh, and support for um, the Muslim population and, and the interfaith population uh, at the Claremont Colleges. That's great stuff, mashallah. Uh, I'm a, at University of Toronto. I know we also have Muslim chaplaincy, except I find that um, while there is a chaplain, they're sometimes maybe not as, uh, Muslims are not as represented or maybe not m making as much use as the Muslim chaplaincy. Like I've attended a few events um, where the Muslim chaplain was not even there, um, and very few student groups, Muslim groups that are involved. Uh, so it's a bit disappointing, especially compared to other faith groups, that Muslims are not seeing the importance of kind of being proactive, especially in an academic setting, uh, getting representation, uh, kind of sharing Islam in a in a different way, and the way the way that you do at Claremont College. So. Uh, I think that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say that I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, you know, one of the, the, the things generally, I think one of my observations of our, our communities is that we spend a lot of effort and time in sort of building our community, especially uh, paying a lot of attention to our younger children and, um, you know, those who are school-aged and even the youth to kind of get them through, uh, you know, receive good religious uh, education and promote you know, kind of uh, community and whatnot. And then suddenly, in many cases, when um, our youth go to college, uh, sometimes they might be moving away from their, you know, homes. Mm -hmm. And they're in an environment now where 
you know, essentially you have the whole world in front of you in terms of ideologies and, and, and people and, and diversity of, of thought and practice and so what, uh, so on and, and, and so forth. And, and so, um, you know, I, I think that um, oftentimes we tend to neglect that, that cohort, cohort and that's, that's really dangerous, I think. Um, yeah. uh, it's very risky because uh, that's, that's a time where I think our, our communities really need support. Um, they need continued religious and spiritual guidance. It's a time where they're, they're facing a lot of different uh, challenges in their thought, right? And so they need someone who is well-versed in the Islamic tradition and, and can answer their questions and can help guide them um, and sort of keep them uh, uh, strong in terms of you know, their religious tradition and building community. So uh, we certainly have a lot uh, of work to do. Um, in that regard, yeah. Definitely, I agree. It's one of the most vulnerable moments for, uh, you know, for a, gro a growing Muslim, you know, when they're in university, especially when they move, like you said. And all that building up of a community, all that, you know, re maybe religious training, learning, all that stuff, it gets cut off. Their connection with their identity almost disappears. Um, so it is disappointing. I, I agree. We have a lot of work to go. Uh, but following that point on... Um, kind of uh, religious coexistence, um, a common thread between many Abrahamic faiths and even faiths outside of the Abrahamic traditions is uh, the idea of the awaited one, messianism, having someone that we are waiting for to arrive, the promised one, the savior, the messiah, various names throughout history, everyone kind of names this figure something else. We name him the Mahdi both in uh, you know, Sunni tradition and, and Shi'i tradition. We are waiting for the Mahdi. Um, what do you think, given that you have uh, such an extensive background in um, Islamic uh, thinking and uh, Islamic history, what, do you, what is the common kind of thread, and you have so much experience with these other faith groups and faith traditions, why is there this common thread of messianism and believing in the awaited one between all of these faiths? Like, what is, what is behind that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, well, one thing, I think we can look at this sort of externally and internally. So as you noted, the Abrahamic religions, that is Judaism, Christianity, Islam, oftentimes those are the three Abrahamic traditions, right? They have this very common idea of the Messiah, which essentially is the savior, right? A figure who, you know, fulfills that, that particular purpose that mm -hmm. uh, is the savior of humanity, essentially. Um, uh, from an internal perspective, that makes sense because, you know, as Muslims, we believe that Islam is a continuation of these previous traditions, all of which come from Allah. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he sent the prophets and the messengers, including, you know, from the beginning, including all the way the line of, uh, Prophet Ibrahim, Abraham, peace be upon him, and then all the way down to Moses and Jesus, all the way to Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And so, internally, it makes sense that these traditions, at least broadly speaking, mm -hmm. you know, they kind of um, in common they have this similar kind of uh, 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 belief uh, in common, right? Um, just as you know, the three would be considered monotheistic traditions, right? Mm -hmm just as the three would have other kind of similar issues of belief and practice, generally speaking. So internally, from a sort of insider point of view, as a, as a Muslim, you know, as a person of faith, you know, I would say that, um, you know, this is just 
congruent with the previous traditions. These traditions, you know, at least from a Muslim point of view, you know, they all come from one source, and so this belief is inherent to all three of them as part of the larger kind of divine plan and divine message, right? We can also examine this question externally, right? Sort of like a quote-unquote as an outsider, right? As an observer. I think that's the question that you're kind of asking. Yeah. What is the purpose behind this idea, right? right? It's not so much do you know Jews, Christians, and Muslims believe in the Savior. No, we, we know they do. But what purpose does it fulfill? And I think that you know, we can kind of um, think about this in many ways, but one way that I, f I find is helpful for me is to think of this in, in the very sort of uh, sense of like human psychology, essentially, that human beings, we are on this journey of life. We are in need of things that provide us with guidance and strength and hope. Because the reality is the world can be a very dark place, can be a very tragic place. This is what we see. I mean, you just turn on the news every single day. I mean, most of what we consume by the media, uh, whether this is sort of mainstream media, the news, or even social media, most of what we see is very, very negative. Just consider our current moment, right? Um, and so it can be very dark. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that does to human psychology, I mean, you know, just to go back to kind of my work as a chaplain, you know, in the past few months, we saw an increase of students who were dealing with mental health issues, you know, because they don't know how to, there's a, there's a crisis, it's affecting them in different ways, and they, they don't know how to manage that, right? So, you know, it's gone up, right? And that's, that's how we are as human beings. You know, when we experience crisis and darkness and difficulty, we may fall into a state of despair, right? I think that one of the things, one of the main things that the idea and the belief in a Messiah does is that it reignites in humans individually and as communities, it reignites the sense of purpose and hope mm -hmm. that, yes, the world could be very dark. It could be very difficult. The rise of injustice and evil, we could be surrounded by it, but this should not push us into a state of despair because there is a hope that you know, the world at some point will witness a figure, a savior, someone who will usher in a world of goodness and justice and, and so on. So I think that is a really important component uh, and that's yeah. not to say that, you know, there's nothing religious or spiritual about this. This is just speaking about the human condition, you know. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala here is giving us the importance of hope, that we hope that there could be a better future for us as a human society. Definitely. I, as humans, I feel like if we fall into despair, um, it's no condition to live in. We, Absolutely. we are always aspiring to, there's something to hope for, we're always the light at the end of the tunnel. Every culture has some kind of idiom or, or statement that kind of uh, embodies that sentiment. Yeah. Um, but what is the logic behind, like, we've touched on this a bit. Like, what is the, the logic of the Islamic Mahdi? Like, what are we waiting for specifically? We have, like... Various tragedies occur all the time. We're going living through a, a crisis right now. Uh, 
brothers and sisters in the world oppressed. You know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened. Crazy things happened. The, the, the plague, the Black Death, everything. What is, the, what is the, you know, what's the trigger? What's the tipping point? What is that, that thing that we're waiting for? We say, Allahumma ajilli waliyak al-faraj. Every time we go through something difficult, we remember Imam Mahdi, ajallah ta'ala faraja. But what are we waiting for specifically? I hear uh, a lot of scholars tell us that it's not that we are waiting for the Imam. The Imam is waiting for us. But it's just hard to imagine that practically, like applying in our daily lives. Like, okay, he's waiting for us, but we're doing all the du'as. We're, being, we're trying to be our best selves. Uh, but what is that kind of... It's, it's hard to, let's say, okay, I'm a student. I'm planning my future for 25 years. Uh, in the future, and I'm going to do this and this and that. Does that include marriage, by the way? Uh, we'll, we'll see. We don't, know, um, we don't know about that one yet, Sayyid. <laughs> You'll slow us down. <laughs> we don't want to get slowed down yet. Um, <laughs> lost my train of thought. Uh, so you're planning your life as a student. Exactly. I'm planning my life as a student, as a husband, starting a family, right. building a big house, driving a nice car. Whatever people you yeah. know, aspire to. Right. But doesn't that kind of go against this idea of ours where we're asking for, you know, the imam to come, the awaited one, the messiah, we're waiting for that to come. We want it to happen urgently, but we're also planning like our lives until our deaths and we're writing wills and doing all this stuff. So, and then we always say it could be tomorrow that he comes. So it's kind of seems like there's a weird, um, I don't know, like a weird ju juxtaposition, juxtaposition between these two ideas where like, yeah, we have to plan and get our affairs in order, but also, uh, you know, the imam is around the corner and we have to be ready. How do we go about that? Like, where should our priorities lie? Or are these not really in conflict? Are they in conflict? Are they not? What are yeah. your thoughts on that? No, that's a great question. I, I would say that simply, uh, you know, the, the, the straightforward answer is that they're not in conflict. So uh, if we think about the issue of life and death, you know, there's a really beautiful tradition. It's attributed to the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam where he says, Essentially he's saying, yeah. work for this life, the dunya, as though you're guaranteed eternity, right? Imagine someone gives you a guarantee, says, you're never going to die. You're going to do all sorts of things, right? Yeah, you're gonna start to, it changes everything. You yeah. start to really plan ahead, you know? If you're going to invest in the stock market, khalas, you know, you, I'm going to put my money f for the next, you know, 5,000 years, you know? Yeah. It's going to be very different, right? But at the same time, he says, But work for the hereafter as though today is your last day. You're going to die tomorrow, right? Okay. So essentially, it's, it's, it's maintaining this balance between working, doing your thing, you know, getting an education, getting a good job, you know, getting a promotion, getting married, having a family, building your, your sort of material and your physical life, right? But at the same time, also preparing for the inevitable. So I think that in the case of the, the you know, awaiting the, the Imam, the Mahdi, it, it's a very similar kind of thing. Mm -hmm. One, on the one hand, where we continue to do that which we need to do, which not only includes living, but also it, it includes um, uh, sort of, you know, continuing to build our spiritual capacity, right? 
continuing to prepare ourselves spiritually, morally, ethically, intellectually um, for, for the imam, uh, uh, and, and doing that in a way where, you know, you're working in this life, but you're also presuming that the imam will come and will reappear. Um, now, the challenge here, I think, for a lot of us uh, when it comes to this belief is the issue of, of, of timing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we essentially don't know. We have no way of knowing. You know, some, we have some traditions that give us general signs of the end of times and the closeness of, you know, the, the time of the appearance of the imam. But in reality, we really don't know. And we have many, many traditions from the Ahlul Bayt, alayhi wasalam, who tell them, tell us, who caution us from trying to, you know, actually put a specific time. And, and, and this has happened, you know, over the course of history. You know, we've had a lot of people who have tried to kind of look at What's happening in the world say no it's definitely yeah. you know that's our hope our hope that the imam will appear you know in our lifetimes that we experience it that we see it but in reality we don't know so it's a it's a, again it's a give and take you know yeah. it's sort of a back and forth um but essentially you know your question about you know what what is the logic and what are we doing when we await you know that that awaiting of the imam is should not be considered uh uh, sort of a passive thing. It is very much an active thing. You know, the intivar al-faraj, the, the Prophet ﷺ, he says in the famous tradition that ummati, the best thing that my community can do is to await the faraj, you know, sort of the savior, the 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 hope that will finally come. So it's 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 very much considered to be an action. You know, it's not something that's passive. You know, oftentimes mm -hmm. when we say we're waiting for something, you think of like you know, at the doctor's office. I don't know how things are here, you know, in Canada, but like in the we U.S. A long time. Yeah, you gotta wait. Yeah. You know, oftentimes, like we dread going to the doctor because you gotta you gotta wait, right? And so, the idea is that I'm just sitting there, really doing nothing, right? I and mean, most of us are probably on our phones or what, what, yeah. <laughs> whatever, right? Instagram. But that's still not doing anything. You know, yeah. you're just kind of killing time. So, again, you know, that's another phrase that we use. We kill time, right? Yeah. It's just. It's, it's seen as something that is passive, uh, essentially. Whereas the intibar, the intibar al-faraj, awaiting the reappearance of the imam is very much an active thing. It's very much like, um, uh, like when your spouse, this might be difficult for you. I, I, I like to give, I, I like imagine. to give, you're not gonna be able to imagine <laughs> this, but just try, right? It's like if your spouse is like traveling, right? And especially if you're just newlyweds. I don't know. After 10, 20 years, maybe the circumstances change. But <laughs> imagine you're newlyweds, right? And your spouse is traveling, right? And you know that they're going to come back, right? When you wait for your spouse, it's not passive. Like, you're doing so with, like, yeah, and you're, you're probably going to start fidgeting. You know, yeah. you're counting the days and the hours and whatnot, right? Um, you might be preparing for their return. You know, you're cleaning up your car if it's dirty or, you know, you're, you're going to get grocery stores or whatever it may be, right? Sayyid is throwing shade at my, <laughs> at my dirty car. <laughs> Wasn't my fault. I didn't have time to get I'm a just car wash. I'm just giving you suggestions so that when the time comes and you get yeah. married, you know what the <laughs> priorities what are, inshallah. <laughs> okay, so, get yeah. a car wash. Yeah, Noted. get a car wash for sure, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, yani, you, you, you prepare, right? It's, yeah. it's a very much an active process. Um, and that's, I think, that's, that's really 
the thing that we really need to keep in mind when it comes to the idea of the imam is that this is an active process of, uh, you know, sort of actively awaiting the return uh, of the imam and building yeah. ourselves and our, our communities, essentially. Don't you think it's difficult to... I find a lot of, like, shabab, a lot of youth, they have a difficulty with this because for 1,400 or for 1,200 years, there have been generation after generation that believe that this is the time that the imam is going to come. You know, after the time of the four jurists, um, the four messengers, and the Ghaybal, Kubra, people were just saying, okay, now it's the time. And then 100 years passed. And then 500 years passed. And then 1,000 years have passed. So it's a bit difficult when you look at 20 generations of people that have died, and now we, we're told a lot. Um, and it's not that we don't necessarily believe this. It's just like maybe a difficult pill to swallow that, all right, like this is the generation. We should be ready. Because um, wouldn't people's grandparents have thought that, you know, when, when they saw, you know, a world war or all the other things that they saw, they said, this is it. These are the signs. Like you said, there's always people saying, these are the signs. So it's just maybe a bit of a difficult pill to swallow. Yeah, no, certainly. You know, of course, uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a challenge. It's a, it's a test. Yeah. But I think that's the whole point. Part of the disappearance of the imam from a sort of a faith point of view uh, is that itself is a test. It's a test for the imam himself because the imam is, is, is present you know, it's not like he's hovering in another dimension. or No, he's yeah. present on earth, right? So he experiences everything, right? Actually, for the imam, it's a much, much more difficult test because our human, you know, lifespans, you know, we're here for 80, 90, 100 years max, and then we leave, right? Whereas the imam continues to experience all of the things that, you know, have happened in that 1,200 years. So it's a much more difficult test, I think, uh, 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 for, for the imam. But, but for us, it is very much a test. And it's a test of faith. And mm -hmm. tests are not supposed to be easy. Tests are supposed to be difficult. You know, the Quran talks about There's this idea that we might say, well, you know, it didn't happen for 1,200 years, so it might not happen for another 1,200 years. Yeah, that might be the case. But at the same time, it could also be the case that it does happen, right? And so um, I think that's the, the, the real essence of the test. That's when a test actually becomes a test. Mm -hmm. I think our faith, it's, it's, count, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, 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 again, really difficult to understand because we presume that faith, iman, should be an easy thing. This yeah. comes naturally. You know, that, you know, uh, there should be no issues, no, uh, uh, you know, instances of, of doubt or question or whatnot. But that's not the, the real human condition. The real human condition is one that is always struggling with our faith and with our nafs and with trying to determine, am I on the right path? Is this right? Is this wrong? The prophets, the prophets, the Quran gives us examples of the prophets, right, who ask questions, right? Uh, uh, Prophet Musa alayhi salam, he asked God, he says, my Lord, show me. Show me yourself. Right? Yeah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, Lan tarani, you won't be able to see me. Right? 
or Ibrahim alayhi salam, when he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, give me a sign, right? And Allah answers him, he says, do you not believe? Do you not believe? He says, bala, walakin qalbi. I do believe. Yes, my Lord, I'm a prophet. I do believe, but I want what? I want reassurance. Exactly. So it's very natural for us as human beings to want that reassurance and to have doubt and skepticism, but that's the real test. The real test is, are we able to continue to have strong faith despite the doubt? Despite how difficult of a pill it is to swallow, are we still able to maintain that faith? That's the real test, right? And so that's what requires persistence and resilience and determination that you stay on the path even if it seems like the odds are stacked against you, you know, that you continue to persevere on that path amazing profound um now how would we go about recognizing assuming that we are resilient we're persistent we have this iman in the plan of allah azawajal. now how would we recognize we have a lot of talks of signs so what are some of these signs not to get into i don't because i don't find it particularly useful sometimes to say that it's when the maybe the, the ocean goes this way and then the star goes like this. It's not maybe the most useful analysis. But how would we recognize this man? You say he's on earth. Uh, he lives among us. How do we recognize this man? Because you see online on Twitter all the time there's this new movement. This person, I don't know, Ahmed Hassan, he's the imam. He's, the, he's Mahdi al-Muntadar, the son of Hassan al-Askari. You see uh, a guy online in some parts of the world, he comes out, I am the Mahdi. Right. That I myself is Imam Mahdi. Yeah. What are you supposed to do about that? Like, yeah. how do you recognize if one day the Imam comes and says, I am the Mahdi, how would we be able to differentiate this from that? Well, in that case, the litmus test is whether he can recite Surah Al-Fatiha, right? Al -Fatiha. Yeah. yeah, okay. So if he's passed <laughs> that test... <laughs> assuming, he, assuming he can do yeah. that. Yeah, pass that test. So... What, what I would say is that I don't think we should worry about whether we will be able to recognize the imam or not. Because the whole point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when Allah gives permission to the imam to reappear, it will become known. It will become known. Okay. Now, whether people accept or reject, uh, in their interest or not in their interest, but for those who have faith, I'm talking about people who, you know, they have their faith, they're doing their thing, it will become very, very clear. In fact, part of yani the whole point of the occultation is that we don't recognize him until he is made recognizable. You know, that's the whole point. Um, uh, you know, his identity essentially is concealed from us. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him the permission and his identity is revealed, then it will become very known. So I don't, I, I wouldn't worry about that. This is what the kind of my thinking is that I wouldn't worry about whether I'm going to be able to recognize him or not. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make very clear. But what I think I need to worry about is, am I going to be ready? If the imam appears, and I know this is the representative of Allah. He is ma'soom. He is my imam. He is sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Am I ready to obey him without condition? You know, this is a question we really have to ask because 
we talk, for instance, when we recall uh, Imam Hussein alayhi salam, right? Oftentimes in the majalis, in the Arabic majalis, there's a common phrase that is, you know, found in the traditions and in the ziyarat. Ya laytana kunna ma'akum fanafuza fawzan azima. We wish we were with you so that we would have been victorious, right? And this is something that we all feel. We wish we could have been with Imam Hussein alayhi salam and we would have certainly been on his side, no? I mean, yeah. you know, anyone who attends the majlis of Aba Abdullah will probably say that very proudly. But we really have to ask ourselves, really? Is this just a slogan that I'm saying? Or do I really believe it? Yani, if I was there and I knew that there was certain death, I knew that I was standing against an army of tens of thousands, and death is certain, would I have really been resilient? Or would I have, you know, if Imam Hussein on the night of Ashura, I was with him and he says, you have the opportunity now to leave and no one's going to hold you accountable as he did with his companions. Would, have, would I have stayed or would I have left, right? Similarly, I think with the, the question of the 12th Imam, I really have to ask myself, am I really ready? Yeah, I do dua. I say, Allahumma ajili walik al-faraj. I know who he is, but am I really ready to be at his service and to obey him, to obey all of his commands, right? Am I ready or not? And that, that is the question that we have to always be working to uh, arrive at a genuine answer for, right? And each and every person is different. You might ask, like, what is it that I can do? What can I do in order to be ready? I don't believe in a one-size-fits-all. Yes, there are certain things that we all need to do. Yani basics, our iman has to be in the right place. We have to be doing the things that we need to be doing, avoiding haram, even the little sins. Because some people, they might think, well, yani it's just a little thing here, there. Yeah, but when you stack it on top of each other, it becomes a big thing, right? So avoiding, disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in all cases, in all ways, making sure that my private and public is the same, that I have truthfulness and trustworthiness and akhlaq and all of these things. That, you know, we do. And also thinking about how me in my own capacity, not just my individual personal capacity, spiritual capacity, but also what are the skills that I have that I can contribute to the society that is working towards preparing for the imam. What can I do? You know, can I educate? Can I uh, 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 teach? Can I provide advice? Can I provide wealth? Can I provide resources? What is it that I can do? Can I promote awareness in various ways, artistically or through education or through, I don't know, all of the, all of yeah. the, the, the different ways that, that are possible? What can I do? And will I be ready? I think those are the things that we need to constantly be working on you know, in that preparation for, for the return of uh, the imam. So I guess basically just to sum up is that in essentially bettering ourselves and our community, it's, it's, the, it's that's a way of, you know, preparing for the imam's arrival, essentially, in these forms of serving, in forms of, like you said, educating, whatever we can do to perfect ourselves, perfect our community, perfect our ummah, if that's ever possible. Uh, it's a way to prepare, I guess, ourselves and our community for the imam. But Sayyid, I also hear there's a lot of stories um, 
this is a bit of a sidetrack, but it's related, of people who have met the Imam. Now, there's dreams, there's, uh, like, just to give an example, in Iraq, Sayyid Haider al-Hilli, he met the Imam on his way when he was about to go recite Allah, Ya Ham Sharia, and he recited that Qasida to him, and the Imam wept. And there's vast amounts of stories from Maraja, from people that have claimed they have met the Imam. Um, is this something that's attainable? Can can any of us, you know, meet the Imam and and maybe later recognize it's him or meet him in a dream? And how much stock do we put in these stories, or should we? Yeah. So theologically speaking, yeah, uh, I think that um, uh, that most of the traditions they uh, they suggest for us a picture that the whole idea of the ghaybah, What is the ghaybah? When we say ghaybah, the occultation, what do we mean? We mean that the identity of the imam is hidden. Right? So you yeah. may see, yani in theory, you may see the imam as a, as a figure, but you do not recognize that this is the imam. That's the whole point of the ghaybah. Mm -hmm. So I think theologically we can kind of argue that it defeats the whole purpose and the meaning of ghaybah when we can say that the imam is easily identifiable. Mm -hmm. Because the whole point is that he is not identifiable. That his identity is hidden. Now, again, we may have stories from here and there. Sometimes some of these stories um, suggest that maybe there was a recognition after the fact. Yeah. That there was a meeting and there was a recognition after the fact that this may have been the imam. You know, they, they may be, you know, uh, genuine. They may be authentic. That's not something, uh, you know, sort of a judgment that I'm going to make whether they're authentic or not. I think that we have to ask ourselves, what purpose does that serve? What purpose does this idea that, oh, I might meet the imam and then recognize him or I might see him in my dream? Why do I need to see the imam in my dream? For it to, to yeah. be something that is now something that is important. Yani, it's something that should be important to me whether I see or don't see. Like you know? the reciting dua ahad for 40 days and you'll see him in a dream. There's a lot of these kinds of practices. Certainly. I'm not, I'm not, uh, yani, I'm not trying to uh, discount those. My question is that as a matter of faith, and as a driver to positive action and building myself and my community, is that what I necessarily need? Yani, do I need to see the imam, whether in my dream or in person, for me to actually now be convinced that yeah. I should do something? The, you know, that's the question that I'm asking. And I think that that, again, it goes back to, sort of, it goes back naturally to a human condition, but in the end, Yani much of our belief is based on that which cannot be seen and that which cannot be perceived, right? And similarly, you know, uh, uh, you know, just like I believe in the existence of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and Lady Fatima al-Zahra and Amir al-Mu'minin, all the way down to the lives of the Imams, you know, I never saw them, you know, and I'll believe in them even if I never see them in my dreams. Right. Similarly, I think you know towards the twelfth imam. Now, again, that's not to discount, you know, the possibility, but I'm just asking, sort of, I'm taking a step back and asking, what does that do for us, you know? Um, and do we actually need those experiences in order to be able to work towards, you know, in in our process of awaiting 
uh, the reappearance of the imam. Yeah, essentially that that shouldn't really change much in the way that we work on ourselves and we prepare ourselves for the for the reappearance of the imam, inshallah. So I think that about concludes our uh, discussion and talk uh, about the logic of the Mahdi, Imam al-Hajjah, and I believe, uh, inshallah, this episode will be coming out around the 15th of Sha'ban. Uh, so we ask Allah, you know, by the virtue of this holy night, to uh, grant us all, uh, you know, the chance to be in the presence and in the service of the Imam of our time, inshallah. Uh, thank you so much, Sayyidina Al-Aziz, for uh, your knowledge and this beautiful conversation. But don't tune out yet, folks. It's time for you know the fan favorite. Have you tried poutine, Sayyid? I have, but I don't know if it's gonna be as good as what I anticipate. So he has tried poutine, oh. but we're gonna try. We're gonna try it again and get a rating out of him. Inshallah. So uh, cut. Three hours later. Welcome back. We're here. We have poutine again. Delicious poutine. Uh, the Sayyid has tried poutine before. Uh, I think it, we, we had it together the last time you were in town. Yeah. But I don't think it was an authentic poutine. This is a bit more authentic with the cheese curds. Why were you taking me to fake poutine in the first place? It wasn't fake poutine, Sayyid. It was, <laughs> it was special. Specialty poutine. Okay, alhamdulillah. Astaghfirullah. I would never take a scholar somewhere that's not delicious. No, it was good. Let's let's try this. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Oh, it's cheesy. Yeah, super cheesy. Meh, good, mid. That's really good. Oh, very good. Like, no, very good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Better than what you guys got in LA. I don't think we even have poutine in LA. I haven't heard about having. There we go. You heard it here. It's Canadian. Hadi it's, says it's it's totally. It's like a yeah. It's a Canadian. Typical Canadian. It's a Quebec uh, a native Quebec dish. Yeah, about. So you heard it from the Sayed. Toronto is better than LA. He said it himself. He said everything about Toronto is better than LA. I am not putting words in his mouth. He said that. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> Good one. Uh, maybe you should. Like, if you have time between chaplaincy, between, between being a mu'amim, you know, open a little poutine shop in SoCal. It'll hit. What, what do I need? I just need potatoes and cheese, and what's the sauce? It's, like it's just a, gravy. Oh, it's gravy, yeah. yeah. But don't worry, this is halal. All right. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, maybe it'll be a good idea. We'll see. Yeah. I highly recommend. It's a good idea. It will bang as well. Do 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 Canadians eat it in uh, um, in the summer too, or is it more a winter dish? No, no, it's like a year-round thing. Year-round. Yeah, and the poutine food trucks, uh-huh. they're uh, they're popular. Like usually campuses, it started as just like a lunch meal, a, yeah. a cheap lunch meal. Put it together at a diner in Quebec, and uh, yeah, and it looks a, like it's pretty simple. Became a staple though. No, it's good. Yeah. So if you were to give it a rating. What would you give it? One to ten. One ten to being ten? the best thing you've ever had. It's something you'd expect in Jannah. No, that's ten. Yeah. Uh, I would give it a nine. Uh, ten is reserved only for my wife's food. So. MashaAllah. And mother's food. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Let's go. <laughs> okay. I don't even know what to say about that. MashaAllah. 
this is what we call the the best husband material for men that are just getting married. Like we have an audience member sitting back there. If you just got married, this is how you make your wife happy. You gas up her food, even if you don't like it. But not saying that Sayyid doesn't like it, but you gas it up no matter what. Ahsatum Sayyid. Thank you very much. So uh, I think that brings us to uh, the conclusion of our episode. We learned a few things here. We learned how much the Sayyid likes poutine, how much he likes Toronto over LA, how much he likes his wife's food. Also, how to be a good husband. Make sure you wash your car, you keep it clean. And most importantly, we discussed Maudana Sahib al Asr Zaman and how to await him. Thank you very much, Sayyidina, for your Thank time. You. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.